following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Getting really to the climax of the book as God shows up and gives his own explanation, or actually maybe not an explanation, (laughs) but he does talk to Job. And so we're going to look at chapters 38 through the first part of chapter 40, uh, but let's begin by reading uh, chapter 38, verses 1 through 18. Uh, 38, 1 through 18. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you uh, make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the mountains, when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shuts in the sea with with doors, when it bursts out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come, and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place, that the night might take that that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like a clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Um, you know, if you've, if you've ever read through the book of Job or if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Job, it's a lot of chapters to get to this great climax. And it's, it just builds, you know, this, like, why is Job suffering, right? And what's the, what's the answer to this dilemma of Job's suffering? And we come to chapter 38, and, and we hear these words, and I don't know about you, but every time I read them, I'm just super disappointed, <laughs> It's like, what? Uh, this is not what I was hoping for, right? Instead of an answer, we just get more questions. Uh, Bernard Shaw supposedly said uh, of, of this answer, If I complain that I'm suffering unjustly, it is no answer to say, Can you make a hippopotamus? <laughs> just kind of what it sounds like, right? Well, uh, there's a couple issues going on here. One is that we don't really understand... Uh, God's line of questioning because our worldview is just so very different than that of Job's. Our understanding of the universe and of the laws of nature are just so very different. Uh, our worldview is so different. It's hard for us to really uh, understand what, what God's actually saying to Job. So that's one issue. But the other thing that's frustrating is that we really want an explanation for suffering. And God just doesn't give it. And he does not explain why people suffer. He does not explain why Job suffers. And so it is a bit disappointing. 
Um, but what we do see here and that is important is that God helps us understand how we can face suffering. Not by understanding it or explaining it, but by changing the way we understand who we are and who God is and uh, what, what's really going on in the world. Uh, so, so in this account, if you haven't been with us, uh, you know what's going on here is Job thought he understood how the world worked. Job thought he understand uh, who God was and how God uh, ran the universe. And his understanding is that the world operated based on the merit system, or basically that um, the universe was constructed in such a way that everybody always got what they deserve, right? that that's how things worked out. If you did good, then you would be blessed. If you did bad, you would suffer and you would be cursed. And that was how the universe had to, had to work. And kind of their logic behind this uh, of Job and his friends is that God created the world, God is just, and God is just, right? Therefore, everything that happens in the world must be just, okay? So if God created the world, God is just, then everything must happen according to justice. The, the world must operate according to the principles of justice. Um, the only problem with this is that uh, Job realized that this is not how it was working for him, right? He knew that he was innocent of any great wrong. He knew he was righteous, he knew he did not deserve the, the life he was getting of suffering. And, and he felt like he was being punished, but he felt like he was being punished for some crime that he did not commit. Right? Now, of course, his friends had a different take on it. They said, well, clearly you are being punished. You just need to fess up, right? You're either ignorant of your crime or you're hiding it. But either way, this is how the world works. The world always gives us what we deserve. And so, whatever you get, you deserve. And in Job, you're getting bad things, so you must be a bad person. Um, so, but we know from the very beginning this is not true, because God himself says that no, Job actually isn't guilty of anything, that that's not why he is suffering. Um, but as Job experiences this, right, not only does he have kind of a wrong worldview and understanding of, Suffering and, and what's going on in his life. But as a result of that wrong idea, he begins to have a bad view of God. Right? His view of God just throughout the, the, the account goes from pretty good to, to terrible. Right? And, and his theology kind of crumbles under the pressure of suffering. And uh, the more he did this, the smaller God became. What we see is God is Job basically dragging God down to the level of, of Job. And he's like, well, God's not any different than me. Actually, he's not any different than my friends. My friends are accusing me of a crime I didn't commit, and so is God. Right? So in the end, God is just like Job's worthless friends, right? Just not a compliment to God, for sure. That's pretty bad, right? And, and, and certainly, um, when we think about suffering in our own life, uh, even in the world, this really is one of the most serious uh, dangers of, of, of suffering. That we, uh, we start to lose our understanding of who God is. Right? And he becomes uh, something other than what he's revealed himself to be in Scripture. And we start uh, 
creating our understanding of God based on our experience, when our experience is, is bad, when we're suffering, when we're going through difficult things. And so what happens is when God does not relieve our suffering, well, well actually it starts here. We think, you know, if God's truly all-powerful, if he's, sovereign, if he's sovereign, then he could end our suffering. Or even better yet, he could prevent us from ever suffering in the first place. So when God does not relieve our suffering or when he does not protect us, we can start to form these wrong ideas about God and his character. We think God, like Job, God must be unjust or he's unfair or he's just not good. right? He's not kind. He's not loving. Maybe God just doesn't really care. Or maybe God cares, but he's powerless. right? He's too small to actually do anything about it. right? And all these are... Uh, very much against how God reveals himself in Scripture. And so Job's in this place where, where he, uh, you know, he has this wrong view of God, and it's coming not from how God's revealed himself, but how uh, Job's interpreting God through his circumstances. Right? And so God comes, and God, in his kindness and grace, reveals himself to Job. Now, you, you know, when you read this, it says, you know, God shows up in a whirlwind, and it doesn't maybe sound like kindness and grace. It sounds a lot like a rebuke. Well, it actually is a rebuke, right? Uh, but the truth is, not all rebukes are malicious or evil, right? Uh, God rebukes Job, but he does it in kindness and grace. And what makes the difference is the intentions, right? Job's not here to mock, I mean, God's not here to mock Job or to ridicule him or to beat him down. Right? but rather to uh, show him his flawed worldview, uh, to both rescue Job from himself, but also to rescue God's character. Right? Because what, what we all need in times of suffering is the right view of God, not the wrong view. We need an elevated view of God. Uh, I love we sang this morning, How great is our God, how great thou art. We need a view of God who's big, who's powerful, who's awesome. Right? And so God in his grace comes and he, he helps Job think through his flawed worldview and his misunderstandings about God's greatness. Uh, and this, 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 just so you know, this bigger view of God, this better understanding of how the world works, is not necessarily going to make Job feel better, Right? Like what we really want, we, when we're suffering, we want God to explain everything in a way that we feel better. But I'm telling you, when you're suffering, when you're in pain, when life is falling apart, answers are not going, no, there's no answer that's going to make you feel better, right? So, so that's not even realistic and that's not what God's purpose is. But it will give us a better way to face suffering with courage, and with the right understanding of who God is as one who walks with us in the midst of our suffering. Right? So let's look at God's rebuke and look at how it changes Job's worldview and really how it can help us think through life when we're suffering, when we deal and encounter difficult things. Uh, so, so in essence, what, what these verses do in these chapters is upgrade Job's view of God. And when we're suffering, we probably all need an upgraded view of God. And... Uh, God has a series of questions, and they kind of get broke down in the, this first part into three sections. And uh, Job, God basically addresses Job in two major sections. We're going to look at the first one this week, the second one next week. And in each of them, there's kind of three sections where God 
uh, addresses Job. So in the first one, the, 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 the gist of it is this. Job, can you control nature? Right? Are you so powerful and so smart that you can control the way the laws of the universe work? Can you control the laws of nature and make nature and the universe do what you want? Right? But uh, God doesn't ask these questions just to show up. Right? Like God's not like... Like, 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 I'd like to see you just make it rain. You think you're so smart, right? And that's how we can read it. But that's not actually what God is saying here, right? What he's really saying is this. Job, can you control and, and establish the way the universe works, the way the rain and the snow and the winds and all the forces of nature, can you, can you arrange them in such a way and control them so that your vision of the world works? And remember, what's Job's vision of the world? Well, a place where everything get what it gets what it deserves. Everything, right? So, so God's not just asking Job these questions hypothetically to show that he's smarter than Job or he's lived longer, which are both true. Uh, but he's trying to say, Job, think about your worldview, right? Does it really explain the way the universe actually works? Like, would you really want a universe where everything always gets what it deserves, right? Does that even make sense, right? So the first thing he talks about, can you control? Can you, do you have enough understanding and wisdom to make the world uh, work according to your worldview? And he starts off by saying, you know, were you there when God created everything? Um, and uh, it's important for us to understand, and we'll see this a little later, why it's important, that in, in the ancient world, uh, for them, creation was primarily a matter of God bringing order out of chaos, like for us, creation means God bringing matter out of nothing. Like we want to know how did God create the molecules and atoms out of nothing, right? How did he, you know, there was nothing and all of a sudden God created something. That's how we view creation. But for the ancients, they saw it more as God bringing order out of chaos. And you see this in Genesis, right? Uh, Genesis 1 is mostly about God setting limits and boundaries, right? Dividing the water above from the water below, dividing land from water, dividing light from dark. See, God's ordering creation. And that's how they thought about it. And that's how Job thinks about it. And so the language that God uses here really fits Job's understanding of science, right? Which was very unscientific uh, by our view, right? So, so when we read through this, it, it, you know, it talks about the storehouses of the ice. God's not really saying that somewhere up in the sky he's got this big, huge freezer, <laughs> where he stores snow and ice. And when he wants it to snow, he hauls it out with a wheelbarrow and dumps it on it. So, okay. um, but that's kind of fitting in with how Job and people in his time would have understood the world to work, right? So God accommodates his explanation to fit Job's understanding of, of the world. But the details are, of, of that are not so much important as understanding that God is bringing order out of chaos, and you see that most clearly in verse 8 where he says, Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. Right? I think Gandalf said that line somewhere in The Lord of the Rings. Thus far and no farther, right? Um, well, God says it here to the sea. Well, what's important for us to see is that in, in the ancient world, the sea was one of the great chaoses, right? The sea was mysterious, dark. Its depths could not be explored. It was wild. It was fierce. It was untamed. 
And there's this threat that if, if there wasn't a limit on the sea, it could swallow you up, right? There were creatures in it uh, that were also chaotic, scary, right? Uh, but you see God here controlling, bringing order to the sea and, and controlling its danger, right? Um, so, so, so we won't go through all of them. There's light and dark. He talks about controlling the light and the dark, the snow and the hail, the wind, rain, the thunderbolt, ice and frost. And basically, um, God's saying, does the world operate according to your commands and according to your worldview? Job, can you make it work the way you think it works? Uh, and one of the uh, highlights of this long section, he says, um, who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? And a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is. Okay, get that. Like, can you make it rain where nobody lives? Maybe places where nobody's even seen, right? To satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Like another great chaos in the ancient world was the wilderness, right? It was uncontrolled, it was untamed, it was scary, it was threatening, and, and God says, look, Job, let's think about a, a world where everything gets what it deserves. Does the barren wilderness where no people live, does it deserve rain? Well, it's kind of an absurd question, right? It's like saying, well, does the moon deserve rain? Well, no. I mean, or yes, or, well, it's, it's a silly question. Why? Because justice only matters in the world of people, Right? Justice means you either make good choices and you, and you get the fruit of good choices, or you make bad choices and you get the result of bad choices. But barren, untamed wilderness has no will. It makes no choices. It's just there, right? So is it right for God to send water to the wilderness? Well, if it's a moral question, it's a silly question, right? Like, what did the wilderness do to deserve rain? And why is it necessary for grass to grow where no people are, right? See, see, God's saying, look, your understanding of the world doesn't even make sense, right? You're trying to run the world on the basis of justice, but a lot of the world really lies outside of the scope of where justice would even make sense, right? It's, it's, it has no meaning. Justice has no meaning in an empty landscape. And yet, God waters it. God provides. God nurtures it. God created this world where there's a lot of vast, untamed space, and God is ordering those places. He's in control. Even where there's chaos, we see God in control. Finally, God says to him in verse 33, Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Uh, basically, in, in our language, you would say, Look, Job, do you know the, the laws of nature? Did you write the laws of nature? Do you even understand the laws of nature? And do the laws of nature operate according to justice? Right? Um, do the great forces of nature bow and bend and move to execute your version of justice where everything gets what it deserves? Right? Well, it doesn't take much, much thinking about this to know. This is just kind of absurd, right? Does the snow fall because it's just for the snow to fall? Right? Or do the rain or lightning, right? Um, well, uh, God's answer here is no, it doesn't operate according to justice, getting what you deserve, but it operates according to wisdom. And wisdom means doing what is best for the ultimate good. 
Right? God says it's good for the wilderness to get rain and grow grass just because grass is better than rocks, right? Um, and, and in the world he ordered, uh, that's a good thing, right? Not because it's just, but because it's wise, right? It's because what a loving, creating God does to um, create this world of beauty and, and grace, right? Well, so uh, God goes on. He continues on. And the second kind of line of questioning has to do with, Job, can you take care of the wildest of animals? And there's this whole long list of, of animals, and they're all animals that really are on the fringe of order. Right? They're, they're the most wild, untamed kind of animals. So he starts in verse 39, Can you hunt prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions, when they crouch in their dens or lie wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey, when its young ones cry to God for help, and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, uh, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young. Right? Who has let the wild donkey go free? Or has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? And he goes on. All these animals, right? He ends with the hawk and the eagle, right? It is, by your, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Uh, is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? Right? So what's, what's unique about all these creatures except for one? He talks about the horse. But all these creatures live kind of on the fringe of the untamed wilderness, right? The mountain goats living way up these craggy, rocky mountains. Uh, the eagles, right? They make their nests in high places where most people can't even have access, right? And, and yet these animals... Uh, are animals and creatures that God cares for, right? And, and God basically asks the same question. Can you take care of the wildest creatures on the outer edge of the world, like far beyond really the reach and understanding of, of humanity? And can you do it in a way that upholds your vision of a world operating according to justice? Right? What, would it, what would it mean to take care of lions on the basis of justice? Hey, you're a nice kitty, <laughs> I'll feed you. Oh, but wait, this nice kitty just ate other animals. <laughs> that just somehow seems kind of unjust, right? Uh, you're not playing nicely in the, in the forest. You eat other things, right? Is that unjust? Or is it just the way God takes care of creation, right? Um, sorry for, for those of you who, who don't eat meat, but the reality is God made a world where animals eat meat, right? And they don't even go to the grocery store to buy it. They kill stuff. Murderers, right? Lions are murderers. Um, this whole section ends. He talks about the eagles. He says his young ones suck up blood. Well, <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Uh, and especially for Jewish people who are kind of weird about eating blood, you know, it's like, okay, this just seems unjust. Right? This just seems unjust. Um, but God says, can you take care of them, Right? Can you take care of this, these creatures? And does justice make sense in their world? Right? Does, does it make sense? Do, do animals live according to principles of justice? Right? Um, uh, and it's interesting, as I said, these, these, these animals really live on the edge of order. They, they, almost, they almost live in this world of chaos. Right? They're, un, they're so untamed. And they're actually a threat, like animals. Some of these are a threat to mankind. 
And in the ancient world, they, they actually would describe creatures living in, in this wilderness as having no existence, right? Because existence was so much connected to order, right? So Descartes, I think I get my philosophers mixed up, but I think Descartes said, I think therefore I am, right? I think therefore I am. Ancients would have said, I'm organized, therefore I am. <laughs> right, so there you go. You can base your identity on how organized you are. Some of you have much more existence than others. <laughs> Some of you, you're on the verge of no existence at all, right? Um, and, and, and so he's saying that these, these animals almost don't have existence, like in, in, in Job's the ancient world, right? And yet, God takes care of them. My favorite example in this list is the uh, is the uh, the ostrich, who he says the ostrich is just plain stupid, right? He says she lays her egg in the dirt, she doesn't have a nest, and she just leaves it on the ground there, where any any animal could just come along and step on it and crush it, right? And he says God did not give the animal the, the, the ostrich wisdom, and I would say this is actually true of most birds. I remember one time I had this office uh, window that was right across from another building that was six feet away. It was very close. That building's really close. And, and uh, there was a power line that came in and attached right directly opposite my window. And for some reason, the morning doves were just determined to build a nest there. And so over and over, they'd show up with their little twigs, and they would try to build their nest. But the problem is the, the, the insulators, you know, their glass, they were slippery. It wasn't like a branch, right? And so these birds would come, and they'd build their twigs, and they'd just fall off. And the bird would just fly off and come back with another, another twig and try it again. And I thought, how in the world do these animals ever reproduce? <laughs> like, they're so stupid. And they would spend hours, and then the whole nest would just fall off. And would they, would they say, okay, this is bad real estate. This is a bad purchase. Right? We've got we to upgrade. No, they keep trying. It's like, you're so stupid. I just wanted to yell at them, stop. You're driving me crazy. Right? Um, and, 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 and it, God says about the ostrich, did I, did I say, you're too stupid, I'm not going to take care of you. Right? No. Right? God takes care of them all. On the extreme end of, of wild and untamed and even stupid, right, God takes care of them. And he doesn't take care of them on the basis of justice. They don't get what they deserve. Rather, they get the care of a God who created them because he loved them, and he loves what he made, and he wants to take care of it. Not because it's just, but because it's good, it's right to take care of the world, right? And so, so he says to Job, Job, like, how would your world work, right? How would your world work? How would you take care of something as stupid as an ostrich? Would you say, well, I'm not giving the ostrich, that's just dumb, right? Is that really how it works, right? Is that really who God is? Finally, in the last section that we'll look at today, uh, Job comes and he's, uh, God comes to the Lord in uh, chapter uh, 39, I'm sorry, chapter 40. The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And Job said to the Lord, Behold, I am of small account. I'm small, right? He sees this vision of God's wisdom, God's greatness, God's power. Uh, He he really does get an elevated view of God's wisdom and God's power in all that he made. And he says, I'm nothing, I'm small. What shall I say to you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth. I cover my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Okay, Job is smart enough to know he just needs to keep his mouth shut, right? Like when he's with God, I, I think it's better just to be quiet. But God's not done with him, right? Like this would have been, this was good, but God's not finished because Job hasn't really yet come to fully grasp uh, the folly of his worldview. And so God says, uh, answered Job out of the world and said, dress for action like a man and I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be in the right? Ouch. Right? Uh, this is really the biggest issue for Job. It wasn't just that his worldview was wrong, but in, in, in trying to interpret and, and understand God through this faulty worldview, he wasn't just making God small, but he was making God guilty. Right? He's making God guilty of being unjust and unfair and of wrongly punishing Job, right? But of course, at the root of this all, it's just a misunderstanding on Job's part. He doesn't really understand his suffering and he doesn't really understand what God is doing. But he's accusing God, right? Uh, And this is the sad result of suffering for many people, right? Unfortunately, too many people, when they encounter deep and serious Suffering, their response is to convict God of evil. God, you are unjust. God, you are unfair. God, you are unloving. Right? Uh, and that's dangerous turf, right? And, and the reality is that this is true. If God really is unjust, unfair, un, 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 uncaring, if God really is cruel, we all are doomed. I mean, there's nothing left for us but despair if this is what God is like, right? If if we're stuck with a a world that was created by a cruel, uncaring God, we are all in trouble, right? And that's not going to help you when you're suffering. (laughs) That's that's only going to make it worse. I'm suffering at the hands of a cruel God. There's no hope, So what we really need is a much higher sense of who God is, Right? And so God reveals himself to Job to prove that, that it's just not true, that his, his, his ideas about God are wrong. The problem is not with God, but with Job's flawed and simplistic worldview. Like, that's the issue. You're holding on to your worldview. That's the problem. Right? You need to upgrade your worldview, your understanding of how it all works. Um, and, and, and the consequence of uh, understanding God through this twisted and broken worldview. Right, so his last line of questioning that we'll look at today is in verse 10. And he, he says, basically, can you execute perfect justice on the wicked by your scheme? Right? Okay, so your, your main argument is that, that God has to judge the wicked and he has to bless the good. Can you pull this off? He says in verse 10, Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself, clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Right? Job, if you're that great, make yourself the great and mighty judge, right? who's clothed with splendor and majesty and glory. And pour out the overflowings of your wrath, your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. That is, push him down. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. 
find their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge that you, uh, that your own hand can save you. Basically what God says is, look, if you can pull this off, I'll admit you're right. Right? If you can bring about a world where everybody gets exactly what they deserve, then, Job, I'll tell you you're right. Right? Uh, you can be saved by your own hand. And, of course, Job has no answer to it because the world doesn't work that way. And he knows that from his own experience, right? Job would be the first to say, no, right? I'm innocent, but I'm suffering. And Job's like, yeah, there you go. I mean, God's like, yeah, there you go. Okay, there you go. See, your, your understanding of the world is, is, is messed up, right? Change your view of the world, not your view of God. Right now, uh, we don't have Job's worldview, right? I'll, I'll grant that we don't we don't see the world. Our worldview is so different from Job, and that's part of why understanding these chapters is so difficult. But I, I would say that the arguments come about the same, right? Uh, the question to us would be, yeah, okay, God might say to us this: Sure, you guys understand the world way better than Job did, right? You understand many of the forces of nature you actually can measure the expanse of the earth and you can calculate its weight. Good for you. Way to go. You guys were so smart. But can you control it? Right? Can, you, can you control it and make the world work the way you think it should? Last week, I think it was Friday, I wanted to go for a bike ride after, after work and so I checked the weather and it said 0% chance of rain. Right? <laughs> You know where this goes, right? By the time I got home, it's pouring down rain, right? But I have an app. Like, I have an app on my phone. The app said no rain. Like, surely I can control the weather because I have an app. Well, as it turns out, the app doesn't actually control the weather. Who knew? I thought it did. Um, Actually, God controls the weather. And you know what? He doesn't always look at the app, apparently. (laughs) Who knew, right? Like, we can't control it, right? And, and, and uh, we probably don't have this worldview like Job did where we understand the, the universe working in a way that everything and everybody always get what they deserve. But we kind of want it to work that way, right? right? Don't we want it to work that way? We want it to work where I can protect myself by doing all the right things and God's going to bless me. God's going to protect me. God's going to relieve my suffering because I was a good boy. Right? Uh, we may see the flaws in it, but we still want it to work that way. Right? We still want to be able to control the universe, or at least control God, so that life uh, is free of suffering. But, but that's not how life works, right? So, so what can we understand about suffering? Let me just give you three, so we can kind of boil this down to some principles. How, how, do, how, do we, how do we find help when we suffer? And here's three things that I think we can take out of these verses to help us think through our own suffering and, um, and find some, some help when we suffer. The first is that the universe is inherently dangerous. It should come with warning labels, right? The universe is just inherently dangerous, all right? How does this help Job in his suffering or when we suffer? Well, the world in the universe is not set up so that we always get what we deserve, right? 
It just doesn't work that way. And so when we suffer, it doesn't mean you did something wrong. Now, can God punish people through natural events? Well, he can, and maybe he does. But the reality is that most of the time he doesn't, right? It's not how it works. We find in Scripture that God in his patience actually withholds judgment and punishment far more than he gives it. And that he withholds punishment and judgment ultimately till, till we finish the race, Right? He judges us on the way we end, thankfully not on each step along the way. We talked about this last week, right? So then why do we suffer? Right? If, it's not a, if, if it's not about punishment, then what's the reason for suffering? Well, here's the sad news. Did you know that it's very possible there's absolutely no reason why you suffer? Other than the fact that the world's dangerous. Right? The world's a dangerous place. And we see that in this passage by the existence of chaos, right? God did not create a world that is perfectly ordered. We will not see that created universe until heaven. The heaven is perfectly ordered, and in heaven there is no chaos. But we see uh, that God created a world actually where it's still in many places untamed and wild and out of control. Uh, and there's basically two kinds of chaos. First is the chaos of a work in progress. Right, so I like to build furniture. And when I'm building furniture, it looks like a bomb went off. Right? There's just sawdust everywhere. There's scraps of wood everywhere. It's a mess. Right? And if you came and you saw this pile of wood pieces and sawdust, you'd say, what are you making? And I would say, a table. And you're like, hmm, I don't see it. I, I don't see it. Right? It's chaos, right? But that's, it's, it's chaos because it's... It's a work in progress, right? And the full order doesn't come until the end. Well, I don't know all the reasons why, but creation is a work in progress, right? And in the garden, even in the garden, which was the most ordered and the most perfect, you see chaos in two things, right? First was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's that word evil. Evil is a sign of chaos. There was the potential in that tree to wreck everything, if they ate it, right? We also see uh, chaos entering the garden in the serpent. The serpent is a chaos creature, right? It's not evil, but it's not particularly good, right? It's untamed. It's out of control. And even in the garden, you see those things. And, and God tells Adam and Eve, uh, he he'd brought order to so many things, but he says to you, um, and, and in terms of God's part, he completed his part, okay? Uh, he... he he, he finished bringing order as much as he intended to. But then he said to Adam and Eve, what? You need to subdue the earth. Why did they need to subdue it? Well, because a lot of it was still in chaos. There's still wilderness. There's still untamed, uncharted lands out there. And it is your job to bring, to extend God's order to that chaos. Right? And so we've gotten pretty good at that, right? And in my world... The chaos is ants. I hate ants, right? Now, ants can go live anywhere they want, but not in my house, okay? And so I'm going to, I'm going to extend order over that kingdom. The ants come into my house, they're dead. I'm telling you, they're done. Right? There's chemicals for that, and I'm not afraid to use them. Right? We extend order. We're extending order. We're cultivating new land. We're bringing things under order. And, you know, it's interesting. People think that, um, that nature moves towards order. But I'll tell you what, if you have a garden and you plant it and you work hard and you till the ground, 
and then you just leave it alone? Does it move towards order or chaos? Chaos, right? The weeds will take over, right? So, so we are to be a part of bringing this, this order. But there's a second kind of chaos, and that is the chaos of, of a car wreck, or when something's broken, right? And, uh, and we know that there's chaos in the world, partly because it's a work in progress, but partly because we broke it when we brought sin into it. Sin is the ultimate chaos. It is the ultimate chaos. And it's not because uh, the work is not finished. It's because we have ruined it. We have wrecked it. We have destroyed what God made, right? We, we put a bomb to it. And it's chaos because we brought disorder into it. One commentator, commentator writes this. He says, Suffering is inevitable in a world where order has not been finally and fully established. A complete state of order cannot exist in a world where sin is present at any level. Like Job, we may think it's bad policy for righteous people to suffer, but I would suggest um, that we would be equally dissatisfied with the alternatives. Okay, in other words, if we lived in a world where uh, sinful people just got zapped by lightning, we probably wouldn't like that either. <laughs> right? Uh, I get up in a grouchy mood and I say the wrong thing to my wife and <laughs> I'm done. Right? We, we probably wouldn't like that. Right? Uh, the divine policy that we need to understand is not how God's justice is reflected in the operation of the cosmos, but that he has brought sufficient order into the, the universe for it to be functional for our existence as his creatures and at the same time has allowed sufficient disorder to accommodate the continued existence of sinful humanity. Right? We actually need a world where there's some chaos because we bring chaos into it. Right? So God's allowed for us to live in this world, but it's a world that is not fully ordered. And, and as a result, it's dangerous. There are inherent risks of living here. Right? Second thing real quick, does that mean uh, that, that God is no longer sovereign? Well, no, God is sovereign in the chaos, right? But his sovereignty is extremely complicated. Like we want God's sovereignty to mean that he's in control of every little minute thing. Now, God could operate that way, right? God could direct every single lightning bolt and make it land exactly where he wanted. And the, the, the good or bad news is that if God wants to zap you with lightning, he's a good aim. <laughs> like he won't miss. Um, but does that mean that God does aim every lightning bolt? Well, probably not, right? It says in verse 33 of chapter 38 that, that God set the ordinances of the heavens. He's established their rule on earth. God mostly operates the world according to the laws of nature, right? He, he lets things kind of go. And the best example of this is that he gives us free will. We as human beings get to choose our own way. God does not control our every action. In fact, he really doesn't control any of our actions. He has given us freedom to choose, even to choose badly. So does that mean God is not sovereign because he doesn't control you and I like puppets? Well, no, God is sovereign. But he's not sovereign because he directly controls every minute detail. Instead, he's sovereign because our free will and the chaos of the universe do not prevent him from accomplishing his purpose. God is big enough. He can accomplish his purpose in spite of us, right? Even above and beyond the operation of the laws of the universe. Like God's not wringing his hands thinking, oh, I don't know what to do. It's going to rain and I don't know how to stop it. 
No, God's like, I, I can, I'm big enough. I can accomplish my purpose. I can weave it all together. Uh, and I can, uh, without directly controlling everything. But that means that when bad things happen to us, it's confusing. Is God sovereign? Is he not sovereign? Is he in control? Why didn't he prevent it? Could have he prevented it? I don't know, right? And the thing is, we're not going to know. I'm sorry, right? We want it explained. And we think somehow that will feel better. It won't, right? It just won't make you feel better, right? But the truth is, God is still sovereign, right? Romans 8:28. we know that for those who love God, all things do work together for good. However he does that, I don't know, but he works it out for good. But sometimes bad things happen. And sometimes God does not step in to stop it or step in to relieve it. Right? So last thing, um, what we need in the midst of this is, is to have a bigger than ever view of God. And that's what, that's why, that's what God's point here for Job is. is. Job, you need to see me as much bigger than you do. Right? And, and the reason is that is that Job, what he needed most was more faith. In the midst of his suffering, he needed to trust that God was good and that God was going to work out his perfect plan in spite of suffering. Uh, so the only way that's going to work is if Job has more faith. But here's the deal. Our faith and trust in God will never be any bigger than our view of who God is. Okay, our, our faith will never be any bigger than our view of who God is. The smaller God gets, the smaller our faith gets. Right? If you want big faith, you need a big God. Is God big? Well, praise God he is, actually. Bigger than we can think or imagine. Right? Just think about the world and universe we live in. God made it. Right? We, we still can't, with all of our genius, we still can't explain how a lot of it works. God made it. He, he is vast beyond our, our wildest dreams. And, and we can trust him. And because we can trust him, Paul writes in Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, does that mean... He, we're never going to suffer? No. But it means even in our suffering, God is there. And he is taking care of us. Just like he takes care of the eagles and the, and the lions. Romans 8, uh, 37 continues on. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers or height or depth nor anything else in all creation no matter suffering or prosperity, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.